I'm standing there and I'm waiting for somebody to attack me. No one ever approaches me, bro. So I go running towards where hostage. I go, I draw a jump. When I get on the other side, I see my man Craig. Craig grabs me like, yo, they hit me with a bottle. Run. Here it comes. Here it comes. You're listening to Fresh Era, a podcast about the legends from the golden era of hip hop. Each episode, we bring you stories from the pioneers themselves as we dive deep into their lives, their struggles, and what it was like to be a part of the most popular form of music before it was mainstream. I'm your host, Craig Smith. So in hip hop, there's always been this tension when it comes to having fun. Acts like DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and De La Soul would have to fight a lot on tour. There was something about a happy, smiling rapper that a lot of people hated. One act that was caught up in this tension was the UMC. Upon arrival, their whole mission was to get people engaged and have a good time. But as you'll see in today's episode, one half of the UMC's Cool Kim had to do a lot of soul searching to figure out exactly how to fight the battles that were keeping him from being himself. A guy who loved hip hop and wanted to use it to bring a message to the world. My name is Kim Sharpton. I was born 1971 in the city of Brooklyn, New York. While still an infant, my mother moved us to Staten Island, New York. He was raised by a single mother who had mouths to feed. Me and my older brother, who was eight years older than me. And his mom was a pretty strong woman. At some point, she got a job as a police officer and also was in the military. There's a lot of her not being there and my brother having to watch me for the first eight years of my life. There were some difficulties inherent in that, but I was fortunate. His mother was working a lot, but this provided him a safe place to grow up. I grew up in a very utopian sort of neighborhood. It was all complexions, everything. You know what I'm saying? Like, there was everything there. It was literally like the Dr. Martin Luther King dream. But that doesn't mean that they didn't get into the same types of trouble as every other neighborhood. There was fun, and there were fights. You know, no matter how much fighting you got into, by the end of the day or the next day, y'all was playing together. You know, all right, so there's a there's a cat named Salema Masakela. We grew up together as kids, so you know, like, that's my guy, you know what I'm saying? But you know, we would fall in and fall out. You know, one day we end up having a little scuffle. You know what I mean? I wasn't trying to hurt him, hurt him. Like, it wasn't like, yo, I'm trying to beat him up. I put him in a headlock and I reared back and I hit, I, I hit his head up against the corner of the staircase door. So he got a big gash right on his forehead, so he's bleeding profusely. Sal sees this and he starts running to go find his mother. We had to follow the, the droplets of blood to feel, you know, figure out where he went. He's trying to find him. He's like, oh, he's in a panic. And as we come in, my brother intercepts me. And his brother, who at this point was a teenager with way too much on his plate, loses it. Yo, he just like, he he just wailed on me. Like, it was like, not like, yo, you did something stupid. Yo, you know, what's wrong with you, man? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I eat that. But it was like, yo, he was going at me like, like I screwed his girl or something. Like, oh, you know, going at me. Oh, kick me and everything. You know what I'm saying? And this would be a pivotal moment in his life. Up until this point, he was like the neighborhood boxer. He would square up with just about anybody. But after this ass whooping from his brother. I never fought again. Even when I needed to, I went and fight. This was an impressionable time for him. And as he was getting older, he was getting exposed to new environments. Some environments that may be a little strange to us today. My mother used to take me to the bar. I would be at the meeting place. I'd be at the Mariner's Inn. I'd be there playing the jukebox and stuff like that. He would spend evenings as a child listening to pop songs at a bar with his mom. And no matter what happened between him and his brother, he still looked up to him. His brother was even his gateway into music. My brother listened to contemporary jazz, and he was an audiophile. 
Like when CDs came out, he was all over it. You know what I'm saying? All the best equipment. He loved listening to music and playing it. His instrument of choice was the saxophone. In fact, he played for this band called Phase Two. Um, the late great Jesse D from the Force MDs used to sing for that band from time to time. And this is around the same time that Rapper's Delight comes out. Yup, he was infected by the Rapper's Delight bug too. And so my mother, who was a police officer at this point, she brings home a carbon copy of the lyrics to Rapper's Delight. And I remember her bringing that home. I looked at it and it was folded up and it was like opening an old scroll. I said a hip hop, a hibbit to the hibbit. Yo, a whole mystic circle opened up under me. And like, yo, I got isekai into a whole different world, a whole different reality of, oh my God. It was literally an incantation. I literally recited a spell. And that spell would give him magical powers. The power to get up on stage and perform as a kid. He took those lyrics. I memorized them joints. I memorized them to the extent that when my brother would perform with the band, they would practice Rapper's Delight. And they let me get on the mic. I said, hip, hop, to the hip, 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 hop. And that was the second pivotal moment. They didn't know what hip-hop was yet, but he knew that he wanted in. And as he was wrapping his head around what his artistic expression would look like, he was also given another skill that he could put in his arsenal, the gift of poetry. We used to watch, like, 1948 Cyrano de Bergerac. Now, the thing about Cyrano de Bergerac was he had a huge, long nose to the extent of being a deformity, but he compensated by being brilliant, you know, uh, you know, slick with his, articulate to the infinite. He gets in this thing, he's like, Oh, I love thee beyond breath, beyond reason, beyond love's own power loving. Your name is like, like a, a golden, golden bell, bell hung, hung heavy in my, in my heart. heart. And when I think of you, I tremble, and the bell swings and rings. Roxanne! Roxanne! Roxanne and, and through my veins, Roxanne, and that is love. I mean, and I'm like, God damn. Like His world was now open to what you can do with words, all thanks to his brother. You know, he just gave me an appreciation for that. You know, eloquence. And at a time, an impressionable age where you want to emulate it. And I wanted to always impress upon my big brother. Like, I want my brother to be impressed with me. And as he tried to impress his brother at home, he was making a name for himself at school, literally. And at a certain point, he got into the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. Now, one of the anxieties with changing schools is making friends. But for young Kim, it wouldn't be long until he developed a reputation. We go to the lunchroom, I'm getting to sit at the cool people table. You know, I get introduced to the cool table. John Felder's like, yo, yo, it's my man. It's my man Kim right here. You know what I'm saying? He's like, yo, I know know Kim. That's cool Kim right there. I know cool Kim. And that was the day that Cool Kim was born. And as Cool Kim went through the school year, he started to make more friends. And some of them were into hip-hop. So now I'm kind of getting absorbed into the vibes. And they start getting a little rhyme session going on. And there's this one kid, right? This kid always dressed real nice, man. He always fly, freshly dipped. He had this rhyme, it says something like, Don't know why, there's lipstick on my thigh, sloppy blowjob. What the hell? He rhyme and do his thing. I'm like, yo, this dude is dope. He was like Slick Rick. He presented like the way I felt like Slick Rick sounded. His name was Kwame. Yo, after that, I went home and I wrote my first rhyme. Yeah, my definition's integrated and imprecise, not easily understood. So now I must think twice. I demoniacally deliver and demonstrate pronunciation sentence phrases you won't contemplate. 
He had just written his own words, his own spell, and now he was a writer. He already had the influence of Cyrano de Bergerac and all the other great works of literature that his brother was giving him. But watching Kwame gave him the confidence to go create a style and a swagger of his own. Now I'm about 16 years old, and you could go get a job during the summer, during your vacation. And so I went to summer youth program. I got a job at the Statue of Liberty. And it was here that he would meet his future partner, along with some members of the Wu-Tang Clan. You got works there, Blue, Shaquan works there. And this dude, his name is Carlos, but he was staunch about being called Hassan. Hassan Amir I, I meet him, right? He was a little standoffish, right? But I couldn't make him friends at this point in my life. Now I got to sit down back. I seen him on a boat one day and he like, he's writing in rhymes, just like that beautiful handwriting. He wrote like, like some kind of magical person. And I'm like, yo, you rhyme and he kind of like closes stuff up and like, I'm like, yo, I rhyme too. Then, then, you know, I strike up a conversation with him and we become fast friends. Turns out he's rhyming with this dude named Will. Will is another childhood friend of mine that I grew up with. And they had this crew called Universal Stepping Strong. I had just left this other crew that they wasn't respecting my drive. Like, I really wanted to do something. I, they was just kind of BSing with me. And he saw that Universal Stepping Strong was actually doing something worth his while. And they kind of put me down with their crew. We would just go hard. Like, we, every day, we had this little Casio keyboard. You know, we started making songs, man. We started doing our things in Will's mother's basement, man. He was finally around some kids his age who were doing what he wanted to do seriously. But I had equipment in my house, too. So I was, like, kind of, like, doing my own thing as well. So somehow another, we got hooked up with these cats out in the Bronx through Crispin Blake McRae. And they had an event going on in the Bronx. We used to go there every Wednesday night and would perform there. And over time, they started to get popular. Yo, we would start packing the club. People would want to come and see. And the more they performed, the more the act got streamlined. Eventually, Cool Kim and Hassan Amir Allah, now being called Haas G, started making music together. So it would be like, we used to call ourselves Universal Stepping Strong, but he took the name Stepping Strong because we thought that name was whack. And we went with Universal MCs. And it was then that the UMCs was born, man. Cool Kim had gone from bar child to New York's High School of Art and Design to working at the Statue of Liberty and then performing in the Bronx with his new partner, Haas G. He was determined to make something with his career in hip-hop. And he was about to watch someone he knew do just that. Coming up, the UMCs make their splash. They go to the Apollo and rub shoulders with a literal cultural heavyweight. They make it to the top of the rap game. Then, Cool Kim's struggle to figure out when to fight gets more complicated and puts the future of the UMCs in jeopardy. Stay tuned. Hip-hop in the 90s. It was incredible. It was groundbreaking. And let's be honest here, sometimes it was weird. Gold Rush is Stupidfly Media's latest hip-hop podcast. Each week, your host, Sean Kantrowitz, that's me, will be uncovering a different topic from the golden era of hip-hop. Some of it will hold a special place in your heart. Some of it will be a subject you may have forgotten about. And some of it, well, some of it we're still looking back and wondering, how the hell did this happen? And we won't be going on this journey alone. Each episode features in-depth, brand-new interviews with the artists, producers, eyewitnesses, and key behind-the-scenes players of the golden era, including Graham Poobah, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, DJ Evil D, Fatlip from The Far Side, Hank Shockley of The Bomb Squad, Young MC, David Faustino, Merce, and many more. We all have great memories about 90s hip-hop, but you've never heard a podcast that looks back at it like this. Gold Rush, coming February 7th. 
Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and follow at Stupid Fly Media and at Hip Hop Gold Rush for more updates and exclusive content. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. It's the late 80s and Cool Kim is figuring out who he is as an MC. Not only that, he was participating in the whole spectrum of hip-hop. And as he was on his way to figuring it out, the person who influenced him to write his first rhyme, you remember the kid Kwame? Well, he gets a record deal and he blows up. When I seen the first single, I was this short of crying. He just looks so cool, man. Like his style. Like again, it was, was consistent what he was in school. Like, you know, like, yo, just yo, the song was dope to me. It was just perfect. You know what I mean? It wasn't a cry like sorrow or frustration. It was like just blown away like oh my god this was his proof that he could do it and he was obsessed already but this made it clear that he needed to put in the work so he and Haas G will work together constantly we would both meet out at Will's house at first and he lived in like a whole different so it was like a neutral ground so it didn't require me to go to Stapleton where I didn't definitely want to go because it was the hood you know what I'm saying so they would make music over at Cool Kim's house then they would go out to the Bronx to perform and since they were dope the family who owned the club they were performing at who also owned a record label decided that they wanted the UMCs to be a part they put out a record together under the name Rough House Orchestra including one song by the UMCs called Party Styling <laughs> We were influenced by Native Tongues and specifically De La Soul. And with them aiming for the same lane as the Native Tongues, that more abstract vibe came out. This was supposed to be their big break. They put a record out and they were expecting to take over the airwaves. They did another song called Invaders of My Fruit Basket and sent it to DJ Red Alert. And so that record gets the red alert. He refuses to play it because he felt like it eclipsed daylight. And for Cool Kim, it seemed like this was the first of many obstacles he would have to face on his road to success. It just seemed like every time he turned around of something or another, it just seemed like there would be this strong bias against us. Nevertheless, they persisted. And after the Rough House Orchestra situation, they were back to making the best out of what they had in Staten Island. And they would also learn from a Staten Island legend, the producer RNS. He's the origin point for everybody else on Staten Island. 
Everybody is sitting at his feet, including Rakeem. Everybody sits at his feet. But remember, Cool Kim had a different experience growing up compared to other rappers on Staten Island. And this would make it slightly awkward when he was in hip-hop circles. RNS didn't think much of me because I wasn't from the hood. Like, we got along, but... I don't think he respected me. And he had made this beat. He had this beat tape that he had. And one day they heard an RNS track that they really liked. It sounded like, get out, get out, I don't love you. You know, and it had this little whistly type of thing going on. I was like, shit, it's hard, man. I'm gonna use this, man. Nah, I ain't say this for somebody else. RNS shut it down. So he didn't get to use it. And it was like, damn. And I don't know what Haas did or whatever went on, but a couple weeks later, he hit me up. He was like, yo. RNS said we could use this beat, so he got the tape to me. And since hip-hop was a labor of love, they went to whatever extremes they could to make the record. Yo, we was on the phone. This is how we used to write sometimes if we couldn't come outside. We'd get on the phone with each other, and we would, you know, he'd be playing a beat on his end while he was writing, and he'd say his part, and I would jump in. And they wrote the whole song this way. Now back to the nest at the foot of the tree. One for the hype and see the cool in me. The Kim, the coolin'. I'm a slave for no man. Stand like a low pants, slam like Rodan. Who can? It's just, it's just, it's just ear candy. I just got finished watching something that was saying the majority of the people that listen to the radio and watch television when they're listening, they're listening with a fourth grade reading mentality. Keep it simple. When we was talking about the name of the song, I was like, yo, son, they just gonna vibe on the beat and the way we rhyming, like the way we doing it. So we call this joint Blue Cheese, like whatever. Like, it's called it Blue Cheese. Like, it don't matter. They were building a body of work to present to the fans and to record labels. And even though they decided to go the simple route when it came to Blue Cheese, Cool Kim's love for crafting the perfect lyrics and including a message in his music was on full display when it came to most of their songs. When you think about songs like One to Grow On, you know, you hear me saying things like, like, don't sit beside the shoreline thinking about your woes. Then realize in this instance of existence, there's great resistance to the minds that mix this. You know, the beauty about the written word, spoken word, is that there's so much room for the listener's interpretation. And he wanted to present the audience with words that would strike a chord. One of his influences for this was the poet Robert Frost. To rose the verge on yellow brook and be when traveled along I stood. And look down one as far as I could to where it lay in the undergrowth. So depending on where you are in your life, those roads not taken, man, they can represent regret. You know, they can represent opportunities, the things in your life where there was a fork in the road. I want what I say to have this sort of impact. I want to write like this. You know what I'm saying? So when I see a song like Never Never Land. Yeah, I'm about to see you made it in one piece, but drop the song, huh? A new life for And he said, but we are the kids and Never Never Land. And I say, true. You would never say you can when you should say you can. Because if I would have true when I did, I did what you now see me do, I would have never welcomed you. That's what's going into these thoughts, into these rhymes at 19 years old that I'm writing. And even though his pen game was on point, it was hard trying to get a record deal. We had got refused by every record label. But they refused to quit. They were still on the ground. And that hustle led them all the way to the Apollo. Well, we used to know this cat as a result named King A was a member of this group, Kings of Pressure. And Kings of Pressure was an offshoot group of public enemy. And one day, King A tells the UMCs that he has a show at the Apollo and he needs backup. Cool Kim accepted. You know, we came up with this routine to his song and all that. We was ready. You know what I'm saying? We had practice in the laundry room of the basement of my building. Yo, we meet up with King A at 125th Street. Yo, boy had on this, like, Inspector Gadget-style fedora, but it wasn't fly. And he had on this tweed trench coat, British Knights. So he looks crazy. 
We got in these dope outfits that we came up with, like silver pants. You gotta remember, this is the Apollo. Amateur night was notorious. If you weren't good, they let you know by booing. And don't get it twisted, anybody could get booed. Well, proper boo is the manifestation of the discontent of the audience. Boo is such a horrifyingly powerful sound. It starts as a rumble. It, it, it bubbles up and then it catches traction and then it starts getting boo. Like you start hearing the individuals. Now I had been to the Apollo before and I saw a dude lean over the balcony where we were sitting and scream at the person performing, I hate you. So it's our turn. King A hits the stage. We hit the stage with him immediately. Boo! <laughs> he looks crazy. We're embarrassed. Now, I knew how bad it could get because I had seen it from the audience perspective. And I knew now, here it is, I'm on stage and I'm about to live it. And I will be damned if that happens to me. Yo, I'm dancing my heart out, bro. Like, I'm giving it all I got. Oh, 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 my, everything I had, you know what I'm saying? Yo, I start turning backflips. Yo, I give it all to them. I give them my soul. We turn the tide because they saw how hard I was trying. When we finish the song, we get off the stage. Oh, my God, we got through it. So, yo, so we downstairs, a little dejected, you know what I'm saying? And we waiting, you know, for the go on the chopping block. There's a commotion because somebody was coming out of stairs. He gets downstairs, two women on his arm. Yo, you were the cat on the stage, right? He was dancing. Yeah. He comes, he grabs my hand, and he starts, me and him just do this dance in a circle. He does, he's like, yo, man, I like it. So I'm like, yo, ah, that's nice, you know, start do that. And he dips. It's I am Mike Tyson. They had just got validation from the champ, but the champ wasn't out there getting booed. And so me and Iron Mike was cool and all, but he was still kind of feeling down. So we were down and out. We didn't want to go on the stage to go back to go get judged. King A detects us being de dejected. Yo, man, what's wrong with y'all? Man, they gonna boo you. Hey, man, lift your head up, man. Lift your motherfucking head up, man. You know, somewhere in Idaho, there's somebody crying in their pillow because they wish they could see the world-famous Apollo, and you about to get on the stage. Hold your head up. That shit hit me right at the core of my being, yo. From that point on, I never forget the fact that there's somebody somewhere that wish with that crying in their pillow right now to be able to have the experiences that I'm afforded casually. They didn't win, but this experience gave them the gratitude they needed to keep going. With a gust of wind behind their sails, they were set to pitch more record labels. But one of the pitfalls of being young, hungry, and talented is that there may be a wolf right around the corner with his eye on you. Coming up, spoiler, not spoiler, the UMCs get that record deal. Their songs make millions of dollars. They're all over TV. They're all over the world. And they're spreading joy. But some people in hip-hop didn't really like that. And the UMCs have to combat a hip-hop landscape that's growing more aggressive. Like, really aggressive. Like, witnessing people get thrown off the stage and having bar fights aggressive. Like, jumping somebody in the elevator aggressive. When we come back. This episode is brought to you by Little Giants, Giant Shorties. I've got a few kids living in my house and I can tell you, their energy is something you can't suppress. When it comes to expressing themselves, you've got to let them shine. They are the culture, so why not let them dress like them? Shopping WeAreLittleGiants.com gives you access to plenty of options for styling your little shorty with the same authenticity you reserve for yourself. Find t-shirts, hoodies, shoes, onesies, and much more. 
Honestly, you'll be jealous they don't have your size. WeAreLittleGiants.com has designs that speak to the love we've had for hip-hop since we were kids ourselves. You'll be passing along your passion for the culture when you see your little giant rocking this most definitely t-shirt I'm about to cop for my son. Or this notorious RBG hoodie for my daughter. Slide through. Literally slide down the spiral slide and land in their flagship store ball pit at 4675 Hollywood Boulevard. Peace. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. At this point around 1989, Cool Kim and his partner Haas G, the UMCs, were trying to get a record deal all over town but nobody was biting. This could have easily been the moment where they stopped, where one of the two of them got discouraged. But they weren't going to let that happen. 19-year-old Hosh G, I will always be thankful for that kid and that friendship. If I couldn't do it, he could do it. You know what I'm saying? If I couldn't be there, he could be there. Like, we, we didn't let each other give up. We didn't let each other fail. And that would come in handy as a friendship between them and the rap group Gangstar turned into an opportunity. The legendary producer and DJ for Gangstar, DJ Premier, really liked the UMC style. And he decided to walk them into Wild Pitch Records, a label started by a man named Stuart Fine, which was the home of Gangstar, Lord Finesse, and main source at the time. And DJ Premier, he kind of represented UMC's to Stu Fine. Premier takes their records over to Wild Pitch so that Stu Fine can take a listen. So Stu was like, yo, I want to see y'all perform. And he came to this, this show we did in the Bronx. It was the, like in a church. It was the worst. And the, it, the stage was a bunch of lunchroom tables that were taped together. They didn't put the little lock stops on it so the tables were rolling. And just like at the Apollo, he wasn't going to let this go without putting on a show. So now I'm jumping from table to table, spinning, dancing, like I'm giving it up. Haas is giving it up. We going. Stu Fine is blown away. He's like, yo, I, I, I love what I saw. I loved it. And we got signed to Wild Pitch. Now, the dirty little secret about Wild Pitch at the time was that the contracts didn't favor the artists at all. And there were signs of this even at the signing. I remember as we was there about the signing, I'll never forget this, man. I was talking to Haas. I was like, yo, Haas, I have no doubt that this is not the best situation. Yo, but if we're really worthy, we will make it regardless, like, we just have to work hard, make it so they can't deny us. They had every reason to believe that they were going to be a success. They were already working hard, and they knew they had talent. Now they had a record deal. And with that deal sewn up, they released their single, Blue Cheese, in 1991. And almost immediately, they hit the road performing. Hey, it's Blue Cheese! Now if you with me, if you please, say Blue Cheese, yeah. Or if you please, say Blue Cheese, right? If you please, say Blue Cheese, yeah. If you please. Here we are, man, after four years of being denied, four years of trying, four years of grinding, 
Yo, yo, when other people was in college, this is what we were doing. And now they were finally on tour, performing with their label mates on Wild Pitch. At this point, Blue Cheese has barely come out. People don't really know the song that that that. So we're the openers. Jazzo goes next. And then main source. The UMCs were touring with some legends of hip hop. And as the UMCs brought their A game, they learned a lot from the likes of Jazzo and main source frontman Large Professor. They were privileged to have a record deal, to be on this tour, and to witness some hip hop history. One of their tour dates was in Washington, D.C. Since it was D.C., cast called their folks to come down. My brother came down. Main source had that hit, Barbecue. So he called a young kid named Nas. Jazzo called down Jay-Z. So we do the show, we rock out, everything. You hear the barbecue, yo, it's like that. Woo, all this is crazy. So they make it back to their hotel, and one of their friends on tour calls Cool Kim's room. Yo, Kim, come up. I want to show you something. I come running up to the room, because whatever they doing, I want to be a part of. Because Jay-Z is hilarious. Y'all, I'm knocking the door, boom. Yo, 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 come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. He opens the door to his friend Quasi, Jay-Z, Nas, and some other folks. Yo, Jay, show him, Jay, Joe, show him, Jay. Jay lifts up the mattress, and here is a Tech 9. Oh, snap. Wow, what is this? I'm grabbing like, oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Let's fast forward a little bit during that night. Somebody took somebody's girl. Somebody felt some kind of way. Came up, tried to bum rush the bus. It's Jay-Z. Settles all that. Nah, ain't none of that happening. Back say everybody down. You know what I'm saying? Hold us down. Let's fast forward many years later. Okay, I really hesitate to do this because we're talking about Cool Kim, but I mean, what other podcast is going to do this? Okay, so during the war between Nas and Jay-Z, Jay's most standout record was The Takeover, released on his album The Blueprint, which came out on 9-11, which is actually some gangster shit if you think about it. And remember, back then, you couldn't really substantiate a claim on a disc record because, you know, no social media. But on that record, Jay says the famous line, I showed you your first tech on tour with Large Professor. Then I heard your album about your tech on the dresser. So you- that happened verbatim. Anyway, as 1991 rolled on, their debut album, Fruits of Nature, was released in October of 1991. So we're doing our thing, we're getting our movement, and then we get an opportunity to do Soul Train. Go out to California, we do it, you know what I'm saying? Go on stage. I'm like, yo, we gotta do, do our thing, man. We gotta do our thing, you know what I'm saying? And doing their thing was pretty wild. We would come on stage with water guns and be spraying the crowd up. So we was like, yo, we bringing that energy here. But because everybody knew that Soul Train was the type of place where you performed over the record, they had to get creative in order to stand out. And what we did was, Tony, our manager at the time, had a brilliant idea. He was like, yo, go to the studio, and I want you to record Blue Cheese as if you're performing it live. Because when you perform on Soul Train, it's lip sync. But if you perform this live version, people going to think you performed it live, and no one performs lives on Soul Train. And from Staten Island, New York, here is a sensational rap crew joining us now to do their latest single on the Wild Pitch EMI label. Ladies and gentlemen, the UMC. But as their careers were taking off, there was something brewing in the background. Hip-hop was progressively getting a lot more street, a lot more hardcore, and this put acts like the UMCs in an awkward position. Since they came with the more fun-loving, youthful energy, to some people within the hip-hop community, they didn't have a place anymore. Now, the fact that we had this image 
was starting to become difficult, right? And we're nearing the end of the first album being meaningful. But now the source... That's the Source magazine. ...has got this thing going on about, you know, happy rap. You know, there's this whole no sellout stuff, and that's kind of being led on by his squad. You know, that's their marketing. And so now it had to be more gangster, more hardcore. So anything that wasn't hardcore, even if it was creative, was sellout. And thus begins a sequence of events that would soon land the UMCs in a tough position. Uh, we ran into this these cats called PM Dawn. And at the time, they were in the news for saying something slick about KRS-One, him not being a teacher and all this sort of thing. And Cool Kim didn't really vibe with him, but after meeting them, he kind of liked them. T-Money's birthday party's going on at the world-famous Sound Factory, and D-Nice and the UMCs are hosting it. And slated to perform is PM Don, and it's Cool Kim's job to introduce PM Don to this crowd of mostly hardcore hip-hop fans. Yo, y'all know him from songs like Set Adrift of Memory Bliss, and the crowd's like, ah, PM Don. I make it my way stage left. And surprisingly, the crowd is rocking with him. It's a hardcore New York hip-hop scene. Well, while this is going on, what I'm noticing while he's doing reality used to be a friend of mine as I'm looking around just scanning the audience on my square. I'm noticing to the right, there's a lot of people suddenly over there. And they're really big, bodyguard-looking type of guys, all wearing black, all wearing hoodies. So sure enough, Prince B is like, yo, you know what I'm saying? We're going to get in this one right here. Y'all should know it. Yo, all these dudes clad in black, boom, they just swarm onto the stage like a darkened wave. I look over, it's KRS-One. He grabs the mic from Prince B, beats him on the head with it, and then pushes him into the audience. You know, they violate him a little bit, like, you know, you know they ain't get beat up on, but you know, like, and as that's happening, that song's still playing. But then you hear, The dawn is over, the dawn is over. Yo, it was a scene out of Dante's Inferno. It was hell, the most horrifyingly amazing, hip-hopish, dopest thing you've ever in your life have ever seen. Boom, drop the mic down, jumps off the stage, pure and utter chaos. And in that moment, in that moment, somebody plays They Want Effects by Das Effects for the first time. And this shit, yo, and it, if it couldn't get more, boo-doo. And I'm like, yo, jump. Most amazing situation. It was the worst thing that could have happened to hip-hop. Chris had just done every rapper's wet dream. People have made videos prior to that. They took the mic out of somebody's hand and threw him off stage. He did it. You could say that this moment in hip-hop and the moments surrounding it shifted the tone of hip-hop in ways that would be irreversible. And it wouldn't be long until the UMCs felt the effect. So, time has passed, and UMCs are suffering the slings and arrows of happy rap this, happy rap that. So he decides he wants to put his lyrical abilities on display. So now we're going to do a show at the Red Zone, and I'm going to let people know just how nice I am. So I had this rhyme that I used to do to Dwick. In the rhyme, I used to be like, a riggedy rick, all that shit get me fucking sick. So all that riggedy diggity shit can suck my diggity dick. And upon hearing this, many people thought he was dissing Das Effects, who were members of the hit squad with EPMD. I didn't like Crisscross, The Brat, this one and that one that was biting the style because it was hot. He even got an opportunity to smooth things over with Das Effects. And we was at this party in Long Island. We thinking everything is good. We there with 
flavor unit, you know what I'm saying? Is we chilling, man, you know what I'm saying? This big dude named Al B. You know, he's talking to shock him or whatever, you know what I'm saying? He seems like he having aggressive words, though. And Haas is in close proximity. Yo, Al B's like, yo, yo, y'all niggas said fuck the hit squad? We didn't say this. Haas like, ain't nobody said fuck the hit squad. Who said it then? Now, I come to approach the scenario. I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on, bro. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is a, this is a misunderstanding. Cool Kim is trying to use his words, his superpower to try and defuse the situation. It's not what happened, fam. But he just totally ignores me. He's he's locked in on highs. You say, fuck this. I'm the hit squad. I'm EPMD. I'm K-Solo. As he's saying it, he's pulling out weapons and puts it on the bar. And at this point, I look around and it's nothing but these cats, the hit squad. I'm looking around and I see it happening, man. It's just, it, it, to this day, it bothers me, but I see it, but I can't react. Somebody comes around and they like jump off of like a table. And like, it, it was like out of a movie, they pow, caught my man, Zell, boom, caught him in the chin. And as soon as that happened, the dude Al B was on highs. And then everybody was on highs. This fight turned into a sea of humanity. This is rolling around the bar, which is like center of the, of the club. I'm standing there and I'm waiting for somebody to attack me. No one ever approaches me, bro. So I go running towards where Haas is. I go, I draw, jump, and I get on the other side. Haas is going. That whole thing is going. I see my man Craig. Yo, Craig grabs me like, yo, they hit me with a bottle. Run. That was all I needed to hear because I didn't know what to do. I had not been in this situation. I hadn't fought. In years, that was the beginning and the end of UMCs. Because everybody was upset with me, understandably, because I had wrote the line. And how is it that everybody else got, got assaulted except for me? But that that set this, this animosity up between me and them. There were other things happening that were betrayals of my trust. It ain't the same. So, you know, conversations is being had, I'm not a part of A narrative is being developed that I'm not a part of. So then, then after that is how we come to the second album, Unleashed. And so when a lot of people wondered why we switched up so much. The UMC second album, Unleashed, was released in January of 1994, and there was a noticeable difference. Hey, yo, bet your bottom dollar, who can will make you holler and take a chunk out your ass like a rock waller? I get mad props for my hip-hop Start at the top But when I stop, then her son jump While this album was being put together The UMCs were falling apart Stu Fine refused to pay us So we were like barely holding on At this point now we got kids Yo, we're scraping to get by We're not getting a lot of shows Because it's happy rap shit We got beef now And to make matters worse They didn't even have Staten Island behind them Staten Island didn't get it Like, yo fam, we was y'all Tribe Called Quest Wu-Tang gave y'all some backbone, made y'all seem double and nothing to fuck with. The combination of the two, we would have had something. But they couldn't really think about that because they were too busy trying to figure out how they were going to make money. And we were literally begging Stu. Like, yo, Stu, help us, man. And then you know what he does? He says, I'll give you guys $100 a week, but you got to do five songs a week towards this album. You know, one day we went, we were at the studio. It's Pasta's birthday. And we're still like in the midst of begging for our publishing. And Stu came in the studio with a birthday cake, like some literal let them eat cake shit. Like, I mean, like, and that was just that, that was a snapping point for him. So Haas kicked the cake, took the cake and threw it. I remember 
watching our entourage sort of look over at us and look at Haas, because at that time, everybody kind of got it like Haas was the leader and shit. And when Stu went to leave, they left with him. They got an elevator, and all you could hear was the sound of him screaming. That was the same day that the UMCs got blacklisted. Think of what he took from us. We earned millions of dollars. Not some imaginary amount from some imaginary contract that we would have liked to have had. The one we actually signed. But having never been paid, they didn't have access to a good lawyer. If you can't enforce the contract, it doesn't matter what you signed to. Guess what lawyer I got? Guess what lawyer you getting? You're broke. Because I've got five million. You got nothing. Shortly following the release of their second album, Cool Kim and Haas G parted ways. This was the end of the UMCs. The story of Cyrano de Bergerac goes like this. A man with a gift uses it and causes people to fall in love. His words are used to help the people who believe in him get the things that they want. And there's no real recourse for Cyrano to get what he's owed until one day it looks like it's all over for him and his muse shows up to his deathbed. That's when Cyrano flexes his gift again, showing the only audience that he ever cared about who he really was and finally getting the recognition for what was inside of him the whole time. You know, we started this podcast because we saw that a bunch of rappers from the golden era had been taken for granted. And I think the Cool Kim story highlights this aspect of hip-hop history that's unpleasant but needs to be said. We, as a culture, honestly haven't done a great job of letting the pioneers of this culture know that we see them. And yo, most of them are still around. It's my hope that as time goes on, these stories will continue to be told on larger and larger stages. But as for Cool Kim, in the early 2000s, he reinvented himself. He started to release new music under the name NY Oil, and he's still going strong today. Fresh Era is a Stupid Fly production, written and edited by me, Craig Smith. Executive produced by DJ Cheapshot. Chris Barnett is Diggity Dope. Sean Berman is our mix engineer. Music by The Math Club. Artwork by Ray Allen Davis. To all of our fans, we would like to say thank you for sticking with us through a whole pandemic. Please go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Fresh Era Podcast and at Stupid Fly Media. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The best thing you can do for us is recommend the show to a friend. We'll see you on the next episode of Fresh Era. Peace is the one and only too real to be a phony, the real McCoy, Grand Pooba. Did you know the guys over at Stupid Fly are doing it strictly out of love for 90s hip-hop culture? They make it sound easy, but lots of time and money is spent on creating, writing, mixing these episodes. If you like what you hear, please do me a favor. Go to stupid-fly.com and pick up some merch to show your support. Then follow on Instagram and Facebook at Stupid Fly Media. Also, if you haven't done so already, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Hit the subscribe button anywhere. Thank you for supporting our community of golden era gladiators. Peace.